Section 36 of Literary Lapses by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Back to the Bush. I have a friend called Billy who has the Bush mania. By trade, he is a doctor, but I do not think that he needs to sleep out of doors. In ordinary things, his mind appears sound. Over the tops of his gold-rimmed spectacles, as he bends forward to speak to you, there gleams nothing but amiability and kindliness. Like all the rest of us, he is, or was until he forgot it all, an extremely well-educated man. I am aware of no criminal strain in his blood, yet Billy is in reality hopelessly unbalanced. He has the mania of the open woods. Worse than that, he is haunted with the desire to drag his friends with him into the depths of the bush. Whenever we meet, he starts to talk about it. Not long ago I met him at the club. I wish, he said, you'd let me take you clear away up the Gatineau. Yes, I wish I would, I don't think, I murmured to myself, but I humored him and said, How do we go, Billy, in a motor-car or by train? No, we paddle. And is it upstream all the way? Oh, yes, Billy said enthusiastically. And how many days do we paddle all day to get up? Six. Couldn't we do it in less? Yes, Billy answered, feeling that I was entering into the spirit of the thing. If we start each morning just before daylight and paddle hard till moonlight, we could do it in five days and a half. Glorious! And are there portages? Lots of them. And at each of these do I carry two hundred pounds of stuff up a hill on my back? Yes. And will there be a guide, a genuine, dirty-looking Indian guide? Yes. And can I sleep next to him? Oh, yes, if you want to. And when we get to the top, what is there? Well, we go over the height of land. Oh, we do, do we? And is the height of land all rock and about three hundred yards uphill? And do I carry a barrel of flour up it? And does it roll down and crush me on the other side? Look here, Billy, this trip is a great thing, but it is too luxurious for me. If you will have me paddled up the river in a large iron canoe with an awning, carried over the portages in a sedan chair, taken across the height of land in a palanquin or a howdah, and lowered down the other side in a derrick, I'll go. Short of that, the thing would be too fattening. Billy was discouraged and left me, but he has since returned repeatedly to the attack. He offers to take me to the headwaters of the Batiscan. I am content at the foot. He wants us to go to the sources of the Atawapsicat. I don't. He says I ought to see the grand shoots of the Kuakasis. Why should I? I have made Billy a counter-proposition that we strike through the Adirondacks, in the train, to New York, from there portage to Atlantic City, then to Washington, carrying our own grub, in the dining-car, camp there a few days, at the Willard, and then back, I to return by train and Billy on foot with the outfit. The thing is still unsettled. Billy, of course, is only one of thousands that have got this mania, and the autumn is the time when it rages at its worst. Every day there move northward trains packed full of lawyers, bankers, and brokers headed for the bush. They are dressed up to look like pirates. They wear slouch hats, flannel shirts, and leather breeches with belts. They could afford much better clothes than these, but they won't use them. 
I don't know where they get these clothes, I think the railroad lends them out. They have guns between their knees and big knives at their hips. They smoke the worst tobacco they can find, and they carry ten gallons of alcohol per man in the baggage car. In the intervals of telling lies to one another, they read the railroad pamphlets about hunting. This kind of literature is deliberately and fiendishly contrived to infuriate their mania. I know all about these pamphlets because I write them. I once, for instance, wrote up, from imagination, a little place called Dog Lake at the end of a branch line. The place had failed as a settlement, and the railroad had decided to turn it into a hunting resort. I did the turning. I think I did it rather well, rechristening the lake and stocking the place with suitable varieties of game. The pamphlet ran like this. The limpid waters of Lake Owata Wetness, the name, according to the old Indian legends of the place, signifies the mirror of the Almighty, abound with every known variety of fish. Near to its surface, so close that the angler may reach out his hand and stroke them, schools of pike, pickerel, mackerel, doggerel, and chickerel jostle one another in the water. They rise instantaneously to the bait and swim gratefully ashore, holding it in their mouths. In the middle depth of the waters of the lake, the sardine, the lobster, the kippered herring, the anchovy, and other tinned varieties of fish disport themselves with evident gratification, while even lower in the pellucid depths the dogfish, the hogfish, the logfish, and the swordfish whirl about in never-ending circles. Nor is Lake Owata Wetness merely an angler's paradise. Vast forests of primeval pine slope to the very shores of the lake, to which descend great droves of bears, brown, green, and bear-colored, while as the shades of evening fall the air is loud with the lowing of moose, caribou, antelope, cantaloupe, musk-oxes, musk-rats, and other gramnivorous mammalia of the forest. These enormous quadrumana generally move off about 10.30 p.m., from which hour until 11.45 p.m. the whole shore is reserved for bison and buffalo. After midnight, hunters who so desire it can be chased through the woods, for any distance, and at any speed they select, by jaguars, panthers, cougars, tigers, and jackals, whose ferocity is reputed to be such that they will tear the breeches off a man with their teeth in their eagerness to sink their fangs in his palpitating flesh. Hunters' attention! Do not miss such attractions as these! I have seen men, quiet, reputable, well-shaved men, reading that pamphlet of mine in the rotundas of hotels, with their eyes blazing with excitement. I think it is the jaguar attraction that hits them the hardest, because I notice them rub themselves sympathetically with their hands while they read. Of course, you can imagine the effect of this sort of literature on the brains of men fresh from their offices, and dressed out as pirates. They just go crazy and stay crazy. Just watch them when they get into the bush. Notice that well-to-do stockbroker crawling about on his stomach in the underbrush with his spectacles shining like gig lamps. What is he doing? He is after a caribou that isn't there. He is stalking it. With his stomach. Of course, away down in his heart, he knows that the caribou isn't there and never was. But that man read my pamphlet and went crazy. He can't help it. He's got to stalk something. Mark him as he crawls along. 
see him crawl through a thimbleberry bush, very quietly so that the caribou won't hear the noise of the prickles going into him, then through a bee's nest, gently and slowly, so that the caribou will not take fright when the bees are stinging him. Sheer woodcraft! Yes, mark him, mark him any way you like. Go up behind him and paint a blue cross on the seat of his pants as he crawls. He'll never notice. He thinks he's a hunting dog. Yet this is the man who laughs at his little son of ten for crawling around under the dining-room table with a mat over his shoulders and pretending to be a bear. Now see these other men in camp. Someone has told them, I think I first started the idea in my pamphlet, that the thing is to sleep on a pile of hemlock branches. I told them to listen to the wind soughing, you know the word I mean, soughing and crooning in the giant pines. So there they are, upside down, doubled up in a couch of green spikes that would have killed St. Sebastian. They stare up at the sky with bloodshot, restless eyes, waiting for the crooning to begin. And there isn't a sow in sight. Here is another man, ragged and with a six days' growth of beard, frying a piece of bacon on a stick over a little fire. Now what does he think he is, the chef of the Waldorf Astoria? Yes, he does, and what's more, he thinks that that miserable bit of bacon, cut with a tobacco knife from a chunk of meat that lay six days in the rain, is fit to eat. What's more, he'll eat it. So will the rest. They're all crazy together. There's another man, the Lord help him, who thinks he has the knack of being a carpenter. He is hammering up shelves to a tree. Till the shelves fall down, he thinks he is a wizard. Yet this is the same man who swore at his wife for asking him to put up a shelf in the back kitchen. How the blazes, he asked, could he nail the damn thing up? Did she think he was a plumber? After all, never mind. Provided they are happy up there, let them stay. Personally, I wouldn't mind if they didn't come back and lie about it. They get back to the city dead-fagged for want of sleep, sogged with alcohol, bitten brown by the bush-flies, trampled on by the moose, and chased through the bush by bears and skunks, and they have the nerve to say that they like it. Sometimes I think they do. Men are only animals anyway. They like to get out into the woods and growl around at night and feel something bite them. Only why haven't they the imagination to be able to do the same thing with less fuss? Why not take their coats and collars off in the office and crawl round on the floor and growl at one another? It would be just as good. End of section 36